Welcome to the Treat the Cause podcast with Dr. Greg Emerson, physician, professional athlete, dive instructor, yoga instructor, wilderness survival instructor, and biohacker. Combining lessons from history with medicine from the West, East, science, tradition, and spirituality to optimize health, performance, and longevity. Good afternoon. It's Dr. Greg Emerson from the Treat the Cause Clinic, which is now shut down, but she lives on as the Treat the Cause podcast and Treat the Cause YouTube channel. And I'm so honored to be here today with an old friend of mine who I did a lot of my survival training with, Rich Hungerford, ex-SAS, we'll talk about today. And as people who know me, I'm a sucker for anything Special Forces, whether you're Delta Force or Navy SEAL or SAS. I'm in. Most of my family was military. My grandfather was at Dunkirk. My father was in Malaysia. And my younger brother, who died recently of post-traumatic stress disorder, unfortunately, was in Iraq. So I come from a long line of military and have utmost respect for people from that line of work. And that's why it's always been great for me to le- and privileged to learn from Rich who's ex, well, still SAS, I suppose. Once in the special forces, you're never out of the brotherhood. So what I want to do today is if you want to learn about some resilient te- resilience techniques, that we're all going to need one to get through the short-term social isolation lockdown period. We've got a virus attacking us. And two, what are we going to do when we come out the other side of this? We're, our jobs are probably going to change and some techniques to help us mentally and physically get through that. Keep watching because we're going to use Rich's deep levels of experience to help us come up with some strategies. Good afternoon. Welcome back. It's Dr. Greg Emerson here with Rich Hungerford. So Rich, before I start and throw you in the deep end and give you some tricky questions to help us come up with some solutions for, why don't you just uh, introduce you to people because I know you very well because I've spent a lot of time up at your place in your training facility, learning about survival in the wilderness and urban survival and weapons training and how to make moccasins, you name it, I've done it with you. So why don't you give us a little rundown on your background and how you went from special forces into into bush law and now into your warrior training academy, which we'll talk about at the end. Greg, thanks for having along today. That's really cool. And I'm, I'm I'm privileged to have that opportunity to have a have a bit of a yarn with you. It's always good to catch up with old mates anyway. But look, it's a long journey. And I think in this day and age where career changing is such a common thing, my experience hasn't been too much dissimilar. I joined the army when I was like, I think 17 and a half, 18, went into a fairly specialised role early on in terms of reconnaissance and sniping, and then went from that straight into you know, the Australian Special Air Service Regiment, going through the normal rigours of that selection process. And then I spent the rest of my military career in that sort of role, leaving ultimately, I think, somewhere in about the end of 2003 as a you know, SAS patrol commander, which for us is it's the, the heavyweight championship belt level of, of stuff. It's like after that, you are pushed into other roles, you know, administration and training roles and stuff like that. So it was the, it was the sort of culmination of a very extensive and very, you know, ingratiating career. And I really enjoyed it. Learned a lot about myself in the process and learned a lot about other people. Got the privilege or the, some people call it a, a burden of serving overseas in a couple of different places and really got to put some of that training into, into its full effect which again, was a massive 
experiential experience in its own right. When I left the military, I went into a consulting and advising role, believe it or not, as a security advisor. I'd, I'd done an undergrad whilst I was in the army in security sciences, which is a, a blend of life sciences in terms of human behavior and psychology with physical hard sciences like physics, chemistry, and, and electronics and stuff like that, and a bit of software work. But it was a it was an interesting course dynamic because it set me up to do a lot of consulting at a very high level, which I went on to do for about 10 years, but it was painful doing that where I was just providing the auditing capacity, the assessment, the risk assessment stuff. The first few years were fine because I went straight back over into Iraq and I worked over there in a protective security role for the Australian government again, do, doing some work with Australian aid as an organisation and DFAT. So that was fine but and that was common ground and then gradually taken back off into Australia in a much more domestic role, um, supporting the counterterrorism sort of security risk management space in Australia. Once I got sick of writing reports, I started questing around for something that was more likely to satiate my need to get back outdoors, back into nature, and, and to share some of that other experience that I amassed. And that was the birth point for bush law survival. And that was a great journey. And it's only recently come to an end. Now, well, not an end, but a, a redirection, a refocus, where I've been teaching Australian people particularly, but a lot of international students as well for the last 10 years now, how to find it within themselves to be A, resilient, and to find those life support and prioritise those life support requirements in any environment, be it urban or wilderness, and, and get through it. And then that has led me ultimately into the Warriors Path Academy, which is an extension of that same process, a lot more men-specific, because I think, I think the skill set I possess is much more useful to our men in our society who have kind of lost their way, not so much as a, as a pure mentoring role, but certainly as a guiding role and functionality that I want to, want to continue on with with the Warriors Pass Academy. And, you know, it also really fundamentally, it, it's hard to take the warrior or you can take the, the warrior out of the war, but the, the war is still in the warrior. And anyone who knows me and yourself included has been here in bushlaw courses where I'm teaching things like tomahawk fighting. It's just, so it made sense to refocus that aggressive side of things back into a useful way. And, and it sounds probably a little bit confusing, Greg, but I'm, I'm really trying to get particularly men back into touch with severe training, harsh training, an understanding of their physical limitations and physical strengths and physical weaknesses so that they can appreciate you know, that violence is not a solution, that violence is not the glorified thing that it's, it's made out to be on our media platforms, that it's really about having great capability and power shared with great responsibility and ownership of action. So getting, getting men to be having a more healthy relationship with the reality of violence, I think, is the direction I'm trying to push in that, in that space coupled with the resilient skills that have, you know, 10 years of teaching Australian civilians has taught me probably more than even decades in the military. Because it's just a completely different approach. Well, the need is there, and, the, the, and I talk about it a lot. That, and, and, I mean, this is commonly discussed, the fact that young men in particular, who is historically and evolutionary, have gone through a rite of passage, have gone through a vision quest if you're a Native American, if you've gone through a walkabout, that there was this rite of passage into manhood and this resilience that you had to, Spartan resilience that you had to develop to put you instead to do well in life. And and that's missing now from society. And like we've lost a lot of that ancient wisdom. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you about today is 
is the ancient wisdom. And I was reading before about one of the questions I was going to ask you, which we'll come to later on, was the fact that a lot of this resilience wisdom is ancient. And that was because we, in the old times, in the, in the Spartan times, in the Greek times, we had to go through a lot more difficulties and challenges than we do nowadays. And that's where a lot of our resilience wisdom came from, was historically the difficulties and the challenges we've had to go through that perhaps we don't get exposed to now. So, And why I really want to talk to you about this is because that I really want to talk to and you and I were discussing this previously, I want to learn from people who have been there and done that. I want to learn through, from people who have faced incredibly challenging situations and, and learn and develop resilience from that and come up with practical solutions and have had to put them into action. And I don't really want to learn, I don't want to learn martial arts from some guy who's never done it but has written a book on it. I want to learn from a guy who's an ex-champion so that's why I want to get a lot of your opinions on the resilience that we're going to have to develop to get through our current challenges. And, and so I'm going to take you through some of the things that I've learned from some of the books I've been reading. And the first one, I, the first book I'm going to reference is that one of you that you and I both know is, is a book called Resilience, written by Eric Greitens, who's an ex-Navy SEAL. And he was saying in that book that resilience is defined as moving through hardship to become better and that it was a teaching philosophy which started in Greece and they were said that it, it was a philosophy that helped us deal with problems of life not only theoretically but practically and I think that's what I want to talk to you about today what are some of the things let's talk about first of all in our current challenge which is everybody's in social isolation living at home and they're worried about what's going to happen. And then they're going to have the problems of perhaps their jobs not being present when they go back. What are some of the things that people can do to develop some resilience from a practical perspective while they're sitting at home? And I know that you're a big champion of this being largely mental rather than physical. So, so what are some of the things that, that you can pass on to us to help us with that resilience development? It's timely, mate, because I just wrote a post on the Warriors Path Academy Facebook page last night that really speaks to this particular question quite well. And I wrote a bit of a blurb built onto it. It's something that Carl von Kloswitz wrote many, many years ago in, in the context of war. And what it was about was the severe training side of things. So it's either direct experience of hardship. He used the term war, and I've just bracketed in hardship, so it's more generic to, in our modern context. But it's the hardship that forges us to develop the resilience, or it is severe training. And I use the word severe at the moment because a lot of the training that is out there is not tough enough. It is just simply too soft, too ease-centric, and we're not, we're actually ripping our students off in that space because they're not actually forged by any kind of challenge. We don't do that anymore. And as a consequence, we've, we've, we've had a long period in our society of comfort, ease and convenience those things like any sort of animal you put into that situation where it doesn't have to worry about predation shelter water food it's kind of safe it switches its mindset to other things and in our case it's been to addictions it's been to increasing our sense of pleasure and luxury and we've, we've pursued things away from that spartan lifestyle and i'm not saying that we should all be like just sleeping on the floor and bare concrete and like being completely low 
over the top with it. But we've gone over the top with it in terms of the pursuit of comfort and creature pleasures by and large. From, from my observations, probably from my worldview, it's stark. Because when I stepped out of the military, where I'd been in a basically a cloistered bubble of that Spartan kind of culture for most of my adult life, I stepped out as a civilian and went like, my gosh, what have you guys been doing out here? Because everyone was portly and overweight and people were focused on things that were really not quite important as far as I could ascertain at that stage. And, and I had very little interest in developing sort of resilience. They didn't, that was like back then in the early 2000s, the term hadn't even really been coined in common usage as the way it has now. It was, it was still like, what? It's kind of like, it, it showed up for me first in crisis management, crisis and emergency management. There was a, I was working for a period of time in that space and a guy put out a, a, a sorry, international standard, ISOS, on, talking about organisational resilience. And the company I was with at the time said, look, this is your space. Can you sit down with the author of this guy and, and have a look at what he's done? I went, yeah, cool. That's the first sort of thing I had where there was an awareness of this term resilience in that usage that we now sort of take for granted. And now we're finding ourselves having been soft and cuddly for a while, having to now really radically deal with dynamic change. And if you look at my definition of the way survival is, survival is really risk management combined with being able to cope with fear and stress and dynamic change. We've kind of got all those wrapped together in the current environment. If you're sitting at home in, in fairly, fairly and relative safety, there's a lot of stress underlying us. So the approach I'd offer, Greg, is this. You know, I've used the stopper one in the past, the sit, think, observe, plan, and act as a, as a simple mnemonic to get people in emergency situations to regain some emotional control. Because what we find in that dynamic space is people get their brain running the show in a negative thought pattern. It's not beneficial. And it triggers that neurological software patterning of pain release. We've got our fight and flight system then kicked in our limbic brains in absolute full roar. And then we're unable then to process things at a more analytical level. We just, we've switched off those attributes of our neurology. Now, if you look at that sympathetic line of sympathetic nervous system and sorry, the parasympathetic nervous system, our rest, digest, repair, it's all switched off when we're under stress. And our, our science tells us that very clearly now. So when we're in that state of anxiety, be it sitting in our living room wondering about the future or we're, being, we're staring down the, you know, the, the laneway at a, at a raging buffalo heading towards us, our nervous system's responding in the same way. And I think the trick with resilience and with stress management is to accept that that software is going to be in place. It's going to undertake its role and you just need to be aware of it. So a lot of the training I've spent over the last 20 years has been becoming aware of that myself and then also making sure that people I teach are aware that that is going on. So there's a red flag system that comes up. The sit, think particularly is the, is the first implement implementation of that sort of process if we don't have an awareness that something's going on that 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 chemistry is, is now affecting our physiology and our psychology then we're completely slave to it and most people to be completely honest when we when something goes bang that's what's going on in their, their experience they are completely slave to this early version of limbic response to threat and it just plays out 
and they can't make sound decisions. They can't, they can't bring to bear the full resource of their intellect yep. to sit back and go, what's actually going on? So first, first point is about getting that under grips. The second point is getting into an observer position. And it's, those two kind of work hand in hand. It's the orientation part. Yes. So the sit and the think is, is about getting to grips with your underlying neurology as it plays out in physiology and the chemi- biochemistry that supports it. Bang, you've got a dump of adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol in your system. It's going to make you behave and experience through all your senses certain things. It's, it's a filter of what's going to be necessary to get you out of trouble now. That's great when there's a tiger there, but it's not necessarily great when there's a more distant level of threat that creates increased anxiety that's the space most people are in now it's not they're in immediate peril but there's that foreboding that anxiety and and nervousness built up because there's uncertainty and human beings love certainty we love familiarity and when that's suddenly threatened and challenged we respond with that same neurological pathway we get the same impact on our ability to perform so we've got to get that under wraps first these days, you know, the stopwatch um, mnemonic I used early on, probably about maybe five, six years ago now within Bushlaw Survival School, I started introducing what was called combat breathing. I've since changed the terminology for my own reasons back into battle breathing, as in a, it's, a, it's a battle to stay calm. And battle breathing is simple. We've been teaching it to astronauts and Olympic athletes and special forces guys for about 20 odd years now. And it's a simple process of cyclic breathing. And it's, you, you'll see, you see it in the yogic traditions. You see it in a lot of our spirit, ancient spirituality sort of traditions where it's just that control of breath, the focus of breath, the, the focusing upon breath. But at a, at a physiological level, it's also a mechanism that allows us to soothe our limbic response to what we perceive. And it's simple. You know, it's an inhalation of, about four seconds, a nice deep belly breath, inhalation for four seconds, hold for four to five seconds and exhale for four seconds. I've recently modified it to exhale to about six to eight seconds. So it mimics the sigh response of the human body, which we only do when we're safe. We only can breathe that way in that cyclic deep fashion when we're safe. You don't do it when you're running from a tiger. So we're we're basically giving them messages to our, our limbic system to say, it's all good, calm down. So that inhalation process and holding and exhalation also helps to can give us some control over our heart rate. And you know, that's one of the things we, we need to get down so it can, we can start to get some control over our system, both our physiology and our psychology. We can't do that if we've got a heart rate of 145 beats per minute. So the, the science tells us about 115 beats per minute is the threshold. And we can stay below that or below, we get some level of fine motor coordination. We have some level of analytical and cognitive thought process still accessible to us. We, we can make more complex decisions other than that way, fight, that way, run. That, that's what we're limited to with a full-blown you know, limbic system response. So it's... It's a simple method and it's so simple, it's almost like, really? How did we miss that? But we did. We missed it for generations and it, we brought it back in. And now our special forces soldiers are taught combat breathing for that particular reason. Because when we've got a soothed limbic system, we can perform with the advantages of, of our adrenal system response kicking in, but still do the other stuff that's going to make us be efficient 
on the battlefield. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is what I call, it's languaging, it's mind languaging. And I use a particular phrase, and that phrase is simply, isn't that interesting? So it doesn't matter what I'm dealing with, what, what's in front of me, to give myself an observer position. So to take the person, you know, the, the direct attack. Oh, this is all against me. Why me? It's, this is unfair. To, to remove all those nuances, you step back into a bigger frame. And I just use that simple phrase of, isn't that interesting? These people are having a go at me. Isn't that interesting? And what I'm automatically starting to do is I'm languaging my thoughts. It's giving them something useful to do, but it's also giving them something to step back from. Don't be so personal about this. You know, on, on training you've done here, you would have heard me talk about being professional, never personal in combat. It's never about, you know, you trying to prove something. That's an ego platform of interaction that is not useful. It's, it's like two young 18-year-old blokes trying to prove who's the toughest guy in the, in the playground type thing. So it's, it's not useful. It's, it's kind of pathetic to watch. So we've got to remove that ego space out of our thinking. And we do that by stepping back, not physically in a geographic relationship, but from a perspective. And then by and large, we end up with increased peripheral awareness of the bigger picture. And this is what we found, or what I, know, what I observed people doing, you know, these are high level operators in the, in the Australian Special Forces and, and in the US and UK Special Forces, guys that were exceptionally good in room combat situations, naturally, exhibited this behavior others took time to develop it and we couldn't i, I wish i had a known now what i knew known then what i knew now we could have we could have got them to a higher level faster it was very much a sink or swim process but it was clear some of us could just do this naturally so it's just an inherent human behavior that we were basically being screened for and filtered and said that's good keep that one and the other guys were struggling to keep up because they were overwhelmed with the amount of data they had to process and try and make sense of because they're too up close and personal. Those that could naturally just step back a bit and go like, what's going on? It's like in the emergency trauma space, Greg. If you're up to elbows in blood and guts there and you're taking that at a very personal level, you, you can't see the bigger picture. And it's a discipline to step back from that up close and personal into a wider perspective. But then you get depth and when you get depth, you see all the various interplays and interactions. There are a vast range of options available to us as potential solutions. So whether you're stuck at home in your living room, if you can soothe your limbic system and then step back into this wider perspective of life, a bigger frame where you're not taking it so personal. Why is my job being cold? Why am I, why is it, why are we doing this? Let that, let that little voice of ego sit over there in the corner while you step back as a mature and enlightened and evolved human being go, okay, well, change is the only constant we know that exists on this planet. Why am I taking it so personally? And then the phraseology is simple. Isn't that interesting? I've just been sacked from my, from my job, as opposed to the normal reaction, which is our adrenal response, anger, fear, frustration, anxiety. It's simply, well, isn't that interesting? And you'll see it. If you practice it in your own mind, your own speaking, you'll see that you automatically kind of, withdraw to a reserved position and you start looking at things much more objectively, much more big frame, much less personally, less ego, more, more of the, the, the person we should be. And then we handle the stress and duress of things in a much more appropriate way. Then, 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 you can go on, then you can go to the next part, which is the plan and take action. 
coming from yes. a mental aspect where your brain is much better at making decisions. You're out of the monkey mind. You're out of the tyrant king mind. You're in the flow state. Have you read the book, um, Stealing Fire, about the flow state? I haven't yet, but I'll have to. Oh, you would love it. Well. You would love it because big parts in there about special forces, how they're learning from the special forces, some of the practical aspects of achieving the flow state. You know, the breathing mm. and when they talk about, you know, some of the plant medicines you can use for flow state, but also some of the physical and mental strategies that special forces have used to develop the flow state, knowing that when they're moving, working in teams, it's like it's not a team of individuals. It's a smooth machine which mm -hmm. is working that are incredibly focused in this flow state. It was a fantastic book. You'd really love it. So we'll talk about we'll talk about practicing later on because that's probably one of the other tips. I just wanted to make you to comment on something I'm about to say. When you said that perhaps there's a lack of resilience in society now, do you think that that not only have we not put ourselves in that situation to develop resilience, but we're also perhaps being taught that we're powerless? Like for, with this virus, for instance, we're kind of being it's being suggested to us that there's nothing much we can do about it. You can't improve your immune system. You just have to sit in your home and cross your fingers. But having run leprosy wards in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, having worked with you and the special forces, having studied with the Apache in Arizona, that's not traditionally what we got taught as a species. We got taught how to develop resilience and practices practice it and that it was well within our means to develop that resilience are you worried that not only are we living lives that don't develop resilience but we're being actively told that we can't develop it yes 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 and yes look and it's it's one something i'm within the virus path academy it's one of the main themes of what i'm trying to get across there it, it comes down to to the phraseology and the name of you know jocko willink's book it's extreme ownership I don't think we possess that. We need to get back to being self-responsible, you know, self-reliant. Yes, we can be assisted by external agencies, organisations and information, education and everything else. But at the end of the day, it can't be done for us. Now, people sit there and I, early on when the, when the COVID-19 sort of outbreak occurred, people were going, oh, this is like going to be the next Spanish flu. It's going to be you know, unstoppable. And going, oh, I've been teaching strong body, strong mind as a base concept. It's the, it's the tagline of my business for the last 10 years. Strong body is not about big biceps. Strong body is about good gut health, strong immune system. So we've had that understanding for decades now about increasing our gut biodiversity and having a strong immune system, even having the knowledge that our gut is very, very significantly involved in our immune system response period and is largely, you know, the the home of our resilience in that space. And we can do that with good nutrition. I mean, that's all those ancient wisdoms show us that. And they're, they're now resurfacing again. And it's like some kind of surprise. And people like you and I have been talking about this for a long, long time now. We were going like, if you start an emergency or a crisis situation, be it an illness, be it the loss of a family member or loved one or a loss of your employment, or you get stuck in some kind of emergency situation somewhere else. Your baseline start point is hinged, which is your success prognosis, is going to be hinged upon your underlying health. If it's not as strong as it possibly can be at that start point, your success you know, prognosis is significant decline. That's not, seems to be a massive leap of understanding that most people have struggled with. I think now, because, because COVID-19 doesn't have a medical or pharmaceutical solution at the current time. 
it's great. I feel, actually see it great. I'm not meaning it in a, in a very morbid way. I'm, I'm meaning it in terms of it's forcing us to look at that dynamic. The only thing I can take ownership of is my immune system. So I have to eat my raw bulbs of garlic. I have to eat my ginger and, um, and lime juice or lemon juice teas every day. I have to build my vitamin C quota up. I have to build my, support my system to do what it does naturally. And then I've got a good chance of getting through this without any problem. And that's, that's fundamental. And I think this has been a great opportunity for us to be reminded that we own our health, that it's not something we second off to someone else in a white lab coat to say, oh, just do this, do it this way, do it that. It's, it's, it's you, you own it. Each one of us, we have our own journey with it. But if we don't take ownership of it, then we relinquish control. And we've already spoken about familiarity, routine and control. That's the things that human psychology needs to feel safe. Now, if I don't have that sense of safety because I've given my control away to someone else and said, make me better, I'll continue to do the things that you know, deteriorate my health, but you make me better. It's kind of like it's counterintuitive to success, isn't it? In fact, that's a great segue onto my second question for you, which is about the Stockdale paradox. Now, for those of you who have not heard about the Stockdale paradox, Admiral James Stockdale was a prisoner of war. I think it was the Vietnam War for a long period of time. Five years, I think, he was a prisoner of war. And he found that the people who did worst as a prisoner of war were those who were deluded about their situation. They thought they were going to be in a week, in there a week, and then somebody would come and save them. And he found they were the people who did worse. And there's, there's, there's many people who think, well, we'll just sit around their house for two weeks and isolate ourselves, and then we'll walk back out there and, and the world will be the same again. And it's not. It's never going to be the same after we've got we're going through. And Stockdale found that there was a big difference between faith and dis discipline. There were some people who had faith that they were just going to be rescued after a week. And then there were those who had the discipline to understand the situation that, that they were in, and they might not be saved. They always had the, they always had the, the understanding that they would eventually get out, but they did have the discipline to understand about what they needed to do in the short and long term until that happened. They weren't going to be rescued in a week. Can you discuss the Stockdale paradox a little bit and how, how that's applicable to now and that perhaps we do need to have an understanding that life is not going to be the same after we get out from this situation? Mate, from about the same time I introduced probably the, the battle breathing into the curriculum here at the survival school, I also threw in there the early work of a lovely lady called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a psychiatrist who's passed now. I read her work out of interest because she, she templated a, a process for human grief, a, a model of human grieving. And when I read that from a survival experienced basis, I went, that's, that's exactly what happens when we're in personal crisis. You know, we go through this dabda process of denial, anger. Um, she used bargaining. I, I changed the words around a little bit to, to suit survival and resilience. So, but it was basically um, denial, apathy, not wanting to know about it. Anger, which is the frustration and the anxiety associated with that. She used bargaining. I, I replaced it with blame because we have a very blame-centric culture in our, in our modern world now. It's always someone else's fault, never ours. That's the ownership thing again. And then we had, she had depression, which was that sense of being completely you know, deflated, defeated. I just used defeat in there because we all cycle through those type of things. Not necessarily in that order, but we all have this sort of cyclic process of experiencing emotions when we get that bad news. And that, that puts us into what I refer to as a victim mindset. Now, this is the, this is the 
the bomb with the science in that space, we know now that there's a lot of this, what we call a small brain in our heart now. So we've got neural peptides down here as well in our, in our heart space. And we feel emotions. We don't think, think emotions, we feel emotions. And then when you look at Elizabeth's work in that space, you can see clearly those descriptors are emotion descriptors and they make us feel disempowered. We're not in control of things there. We're waiting to be rescued, which is something I fundamentally disagree with because it puts us into this, I'm unable to do anything to change my circumstance or situation. I've got to be helped, which takes us back to sort of the beginning of things here. When you look at the next mnemonic letter in that, that DABDA process you see outlined, it's acceptance. Now I use acceptance slash action. So it doesn't matter what you do, and I, I drew a dotted line on the one whiteboard where I'm teaching this this way. It wasn't in, in Elizabeth's original model. She just had the five words. But I went, let's put a dotted line there. Because what happens at, the, at a heuristic, a semantic level, when we step across the line from victim to action, we accept the situation. We know in this in survival, in the survival community and literature and a lot of other history for a long, long time. And you just mentioned about the Stockdale sort of framing of the same concept when we accept the situation it doesn't mean we we succumb to it and we we submit to it we accept it as what it is this is it so rather than pretending it's not going to affect us it is affecting us and we use courage then to take action big shift in the way people's survival prognosis now looked you stay above that line and you will and I'll be completely honest I've been through severe training and, and severe experiences in my life where you definitely find yourself crossing back over again, going, oh, I'm having a really bad day. And you're up there in the first part of that victim mindset space. But then it comes down to discipline again, Greg, to go, okay, I'm listening to what my head's saying and I'm all into the, I can't, this is too much, I'm not going to get through this, blah, blah, blah. Victim thinking, languaging, internal languaging, but it's there. Then it becomes a red flag process, as we were talking about earlier with the stopper thing, you go, okay. How do I get to the A in stopper, which is act? Well, I have to do it. You can't do it for me. He can't do it for me. No one can do it for me. I have to just go, this is what it is. Get over there and just do something about it. That's the big resilience key from what I can see. And, and all of my experience to date and the research and the reading has all seemed to push me in that direction of understanding it that way. Up there, you're a victim. And that can be of anything that you create in your perceived awareness. And then you have the same power to focus it down into action and acceptance. And we have a sort of semantic problem with the word acceptance. It's like, oh, I'm accepting being you know, a victim. No, I'm accepting the situation. As if I'm no longer resisting its reality and I'm just getting on with it. And I use that phraseology, uh, the great marketing slogan of Nike still, just do it. But you can't just do victimhood. You've got to get across that line and you've got to just do the action that you can objectively perceive to be the most logical and plausible thing to do in your situation circumstance. And that I think is all a reasonable person can be expected to do. Yeah. And, and Stockdale would say, well, don't be a victim, but also have the discipline to understand that things are going to change and therefore default back into what you've been telling us orientate plan take action that you're, you're gonna no matter what happens 
things aren't going to be the same. So you have to be sitting home now, if I'm understanding you right, not being a victim, but also going, things are definitely not going to be the same and perhaps no one is going to come and save me. So I better come up for a, with a plan and take action for myself because everything is not going to be the same in two weeks' time as it was before. Dead right. right. And you've got those things within you. I've got them within me. Every one of us has got those gifts. Whatever gift we've been given is there latent in many cases. And we might just have to be creative. I mean, you know, I come from an unconventional warfare space, an asymmetrical warfare space where lateral thinking is the norm. So dealing with some kind of challenge that was, well, this is not going to go back to the way it was, no matter what happens. They're not just going to suddenly magically wave a wand over that. It just goes back to normal. Isolation's over. As you said, everything's back to normal where you go. That's, we're in a new world already. Change has happened. It's going to continue to reshape the world we experience. But I regard this, if you take this almost to a spiritual level as well, let's look at the victimhood side of that. If we say, well, I can't do anything about that. I'll, just, I'll hope I'll get my job back. It's like, well, that's one way of approaching it. Perhaps a, a, a more efficient or more useful way is to go, well, you know what? I'm going to find what I can do differently in this new space, in this unconventional way. And it might be I'm delivering stuff online or I'm working online or working in a, in a different capacity. But I have got two choices. I can let someone else come up with all those ideas and tell me and, and work for them and get to happen that way. Or I can go, well, I'm going to grab the horn of the bull here and I'm going to, I'm going to have control of it myself. And some people aren't comfortable with that and that's fine, but they will be useful in other ways. We've all got those talents and gifts. Small team leadership in hostile situations is, is a classic for it. Everyone's good at something and we don't all, all have to be good at everything, but we're all good at something. And our opportunity here now is to figure out what am I good at? What is it that I'm good at? Okay, I'm good at this, this, and this. Well, how can I now make that pay the bills? What can I do with that gift, that talent? Because it's not just sitting there going to waste if I use it. But most of us go through our lives, go to school, go to university, get a job, pay taxes, die. And we don't get the opportunity to use those gifts. You do. The great majority don't. They lead lives. I can't remember who said it. But the majority of men leave, leave, live lives of unimportance. They just cruise through life. Being on cruise control, to me, is kind of like, well, it's a dull experience. And we have the opportunity now to dig in and go, well, okay, what have I got? What's in here? Really scan through the system and go, I'm good at this, this, and this. I reckon that would be useful. And here's the next trick, Greg. If we can do something for someone else, We've got a job. If we can do something, one of those gifts we can identify can do something for someone else. Remember what I said? Everyone's not good at everything. So I've got to find out what I'm good at and that's going to be my speciality. And if I can do that and it makes someone else's life easier, I've got a business. And I've just got to work out the delivery modalities of that, which is not a great leap. We're doing it right now. This might be the new way of doing a great majority of business. And it has been for a while already. It's just now expanded exponentially. So if I can do those things, make someone else's life easier, they pay me to do it. And then I'm moving forward. Then I'm into action. So, but it all, it all comes back to Jocko Willick's book title. I've got to have that courage to have extreme ownership of that course of action. And that, that's something that's 
probably foreign to a lot of people that we like the comforts, we like the safety, we like the security, ah, the jobs, the regular income streams, all those things are there. But here's a, here's a chance, probably once in a lifetime to just do something a little bit different. And rather than be intimidated by it, to just grab the bull by the horns and go, let's have you. Come on. Let's do what we've really got before life just slips by. So in summary, take this opportunity to work out what am I really good at and what is the new world really going to need? Because it's going mm-hmm. to be, there's, a, there's almost certainly a, a financial reset coming. And that might be in the currency that we use and it might be in different things represent wealth than they did before. And maybe, maybe if you're a really good producer of food, that's a much better skill to have now than perhaps some more professional qualifications, which might not be as useful going forward. And that was the next thing I want to ask you about, the, the quote, which was that resilience wisdom is ancient wisdom because it came from a time when human beings put less stock in their power to control the world. And I think that we're alluding to that now and that we're going to have to start using some ancient wisdom to relook at the role that we play in society. And you were just telling me about your chickens and how you, you feed your chickens something differently. I think there's going to be a movement, and we're seeing this already, to growing your own food, which will be good, and mm-hmm. support of community markets and farmers markets. So there are some niches. It's about looking at where is the world going to, how is the world going to change, and how can I take my skill set, that all of us have a skill set, and incorporate into the new world. So you were telling me that your chickens, because you have a problem with gluten, you don't feel them, feed them grains anymore. What, what, what do you feed them now? Or some black maggots or something? They are black maggots. They're, they're called black fly larvae. Right. So they're a, they're a black soldier fly. And they, they just literally live in an old bathtub and we just feed them all the scraps. They'll eat meat, they'll eat bones, they'll eat everything. And they just produce a high-protein pupa, which just drops out into the ground and chickens gobble it up. Right. Again, this is that lateral thinking space, isn't it? You, you're, you're dead right. We're going to have a much more localised way of commerce in the future, without question. So the things that you can do in that space where I can find something, you know, I've got a passion, so many people have a passion about a passion for gardening. Well, here's the opportunity to turn that into providing food on people's tables. And, you know, if you take something like that, which if you think of, and it's, I'm doing it for health reasons, clearly. However, the black fly soldier larvae are almost an automatic system. Once you get them going, you just throw food in there and they convert it into protein in, the, in terms of their, their body form, which then feeds the animals. I don't need acres of monoculture, agricultural businesses running to, to be providing me with grain to feed my chickens. So there's a, there's a disconnect in that loop already that's probably going to be different in the future. So we've got to find alternative ways. You can't just feed them just the veggie scraps. They need, they need a diverse environment as well. Green, all the weeds that we hate, the chickens love. They need to get in and scratch up much more of a free-range pastured type of bird supported in the main, by a protein-heavy diet. Then we get better eggs, better meat. So there's, there's a whole range of things like that are available to us now as we move forward. They just might not be what we used to do. Yeah, well, that's, that's, where, that's where the orientate comes. at one of my assets, one of my liabilities. And part of that's going to be assessing what's the world going to be like after this. And I'm going to talk to you at the very end about your opinion on cryptocurrencies. But that's a, it's now time for some a little bit of study. And perhaps that's the next question I want to ask you about. The, the quote is that uh, about daily disciplines. And the quote was that resilience that is not practiced 
weekend. So what are some of the things that we can do that while we're at home to just practice our resilience? And I think some of that is sitting down and doing some reading about resilience literature and working out where the world is going to go. And to go back to our previous point is what are the skill set which I might have that I might be able to help in this new world. But what are some of the daily disciplines that you think that people can be doing while they're sitting at home to make sure to build on their resilience? Well, I'm, I'm pretty simplistic with it. Get up, make your bed, get the house in order. I love that video. Who was that? That, that yeah. video came from the Navy SEAL, the, the ex-commander yeah. of the Navy SEALs. I love that video. And it's such a, such a truth, such a simple thing. You, know, you go through any, any military organization in the world over at basic training level, you're getting beasted about making this damn bed. And at the time, that's all you see it as. But when you see it from the context he delivered it with, you're going, okay, this starts the action template, doesn't it? From the get-go, it starts to give me a structure for the day and a momentum to continue to do useful things. And we, we often get overwhelmed by project size. We go, oh, okay, I'm going to build a new chicken run and it's going to be massive and it's going to be a three-week three to four-week project. But I have to start each day of that project by getting up and making my bed. And then I go and train. Whether you go and do yoga, stretching, tai chi, hit the gym, um, if you I'm right online in alignment with Jocko Willink with that. If you haven't got a home gym, get one. This is the time to do it. Get, we've had, I've always had a home gym. I hate going to a public gymnasium. I don't go to a gymnasium to, to look good and stand around there and not sweat. I go there to make the machines and the, the equipment sweaty and slimy because I'm going to use it. And if I have that stuff at home, I've already got it. So my first day, the first part of my day is that. I get up. I don't eat breakfast because I, I use intermittent fasting as part of my normal routine. That's a, that's a personal choice, but I get up, I make the bed. We get the day moving. We get the kids fed and then we hit the gym. And then we're tackling whatever routine for the day that we need to, to get accomplished. And that might be different for different people, but some part of that routine is self-study, self-development, whether it's the, the latter part of the day or I do it early in the morning before everyone's up there's build that into your into your routine even if it's just half an hour to read a book but be able to read and absorb the material take a course take an online course take a do, do something that you can upskill with you know potentially even if it's not exactly right it might lead you to other things or in other directions that you can't yet perceive but do something as opposed to sit there going like oh, i'm bored oh i'll just play another game on my phone that's wasting an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. That's wasting a, a unique opportunity to make yourself better. So they're, they're the base things, mate. Oh, exercise, as you know, it shifts you in an entirely biochemical, energetic way. You are completely then energized for the day, and then you you're into that sort of momentum of further action and you know spending time with the people you love. This is one of those unique times to actually get to know the person you you married. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm incredibly blessed because Reb and I get along absolutely fabulously. But it's also a tragedy that we've got homicide occurring from, from spousal abuse and, and domestic violence in, at, at all-time levels because people have just not made those decisions correctly and haven't been able to process the confinement with someone they don't really like that much. But again, there's opportunities in every crisis to rethink, to reevaluate, to reassess and to redirect. So we just got to look at whatever opportunities that day gives us and seize upon them. Okay, I love that. I love that reminder of that morning routine because a lot of the literature now talks about that morning routine to set yourself up. And I've got one. 
So you gave me some really good news and some bad news. The good news is that you reminded me how important my morning routine is. And my morning routine is to get out of bed at sunrise. I scrape my tongue. It's an Ayurvedic mm-hmm. principle. I do a few minutes of meditation. I do some yoga and then I sit there and read a book. And at the moment I'm reading the autobiography of Gandhi, which I'm really enjoying. But also you gave me some bad news because I still, despite having talked to you and watched that video, have not incorporated making my bed into my morning routine and you have just reminded me that I perhaps should which will make other people very happy as well all right so the morning routine is a great practice to introduce into our social isolation which we then carry on afterwards all right next thing I want to ask you was about the fear response because when I first got suspended and my job was taken from me fear was and fear was probably the primary emotion that I went through and, and a fear not only for me, but a fear of, that I disappointed other people. And there was a quote that uh, I read that said, successful people have a power that events could not steal from. And I think mm-hmm. at the moment, everybody is, there's a lot of people out there who are fearful because they've had an event which has, they think has stolen something from them. And it was, it took me months to get over that fear response, having, having, lost you know a job that i'd done for 35 years potentially anyway what are some of the things that 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 people can do so they can incorporate that understanding or how can they develop that understanding that within us there is always something that outside events and i mean that's a big part of all of if you go back to the book man's search for meaning you know the big lesson that came out of that was despite being in a concentration camp, there were some things from me that can never be taken by outside events. What are some of the things that people can do to kind of develop that level of understanding or or can you expand on that concept more for us? Sure. I just spent some time with a coaching client of mine yesterday discussing this exact thing. He's stuck in Singapore in lockdown there and asked a similar question. I said, look, this this is how we do it in the special forces world. When I was younger, I used a, I was deeply immersed in, in the martial arts, the Japanese martial arts, very much into the, the Bushido code of warrior um, experience and journeying. And a big part of that was acceptance of death. And that sounds very morbid and very like, oh, how's that going to help me? Here's how. By, in that context, as a, as a professional soldier going into conflict zones fairly regularly, by accepting death as the worst case most likely worst case this is part of our battle planning process that we go through when we're doing an assessment of, of how to plan for a particular mission we worst case things and then we work out most dangerous course of action most likely course of action most dangerous course of events most likely course of events and it's just a simple appreciation process but it puts it into perspective by me going the worst thing can happen is i get killed and if I've already gone, well, the probability is still low, even on the modern battlefield, it's still low. Um, I can live with that. I start to get some level of comfort around that worst case. Translate that across into losing a job. The worst case event, it may have already happened, as in your case. But now that's dealt with. So it's, it's already been pushed upon you. And then we don't want to be in that same dab to space of lingering there as, as we grapple emotionally to work out how come this has happened. It is what it is. We now move on straight into action. Well, now what's next? It becomes a part of the past, no longer part of the future. And that's a shift of your, your mental paradigm. The fear concept of that is simple as well. I look at it very, very pragmatically. If, when I'm facing those kind of events, I go, all right, this totally sucks. 
but am I in immediate danger now? Is someone shooting at me right now? No. Okay, so there's a potential for that threat, but it's not manifest now, right here. Therefore, I can worst case it and then put it into its respective priority of attention, but I don't need to have the anxiety now associated with it in anticipation of it. Does that make sense? Yep. We spend that, we spend a lot of time anticipating the event and then things happen and you're going, oh, okay, well, A, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be or, well, I can't do anything about it anyway. I still then have the choice as people like Victor Frankl pointed out, I have the ability then to choose my response to the event I can't control. I have that choice. That cannot be taken from me. Okay. It doesn't matter the nature of that event. I still have the choice okay. to decide how I am going to respond. Okay. And if you can grasp those concepts, you start to get inside the head of a special forces operator who's going like, and who, who's on the battlefield and totally comfortable with it. Whereas people, people like me are more, more concerned driving into the middle of Brisbane because it's just total randoms and there's a whole stack of uncontrolled variables in that space that I haven't gone through that process with yet. The ability to choose, and I can never have that taken from me. And my ability to choose how I react to the situation that I am in mm -hmm. is our power, ultimately. And if you're objective, you can, achieve, you can make that reaction more something that is appropriate as opposed to being a knee-jerk reaction from a fear-based platform. Remember, fear is a perception. Fear is not threat. It's purely a perception of threat. Threat is threat. Someone is shooting at you, you are in threat. You react. There's no time to think. You are in action. The rest of it is anticipation of that outcome, that worst-case outcome. So it's a perception. And we have the control over how we react to that perception. By stepping back, we get better depth of what's actually involved. And that's where the magic comes into it, where you become the professional. You are looking at it with all the data points coming in and being assessed appropriately, as opposed to being in a tunnel, the classic you know, fight or flight tunnel vision, where you've shut down the accessible information to the bare minimum to make a very simplistic decision, a really basically a yes or a no. Well, that doesn't serve us when we're in you know, a more benign or complex environment where we need to look at the whole thing. That's when you've got to have the discipline to stop, sit, think, observe, plan, or you know, the, do the utilities, observe, orientate, decide, and act. Okay, that all works the same way. That moves on, us, us on nicely to the book that you and I referenced several times already, which is Jocko Willink's Extreme Ownership, ex-Navy SEAL commander from... Iraq and Ramadi, and we've we've actually talked a lot about one of the things that I want one of the chapters in there, which is prioritise and execute, which you've you've actually talked about quite a bit. And I, I get that I've had that in both my jobs. I had that in emergency medicine, where of course we're taught, you know, drilled into us a million times: airway, breathing, circulation. Don't worry about the fact that the person's big toe is broken and sticking at a funny looking angle mm -hmm. while I've got an obstructed airway. And again, in my job at at, at the moment too, it's you know, people say, I, I know I should be taking some things for my immune system. Sh should I be taking this? You know, it'll be something which is number 50 on the list of priorities. What are the list of priorities for your immune system? Well, at the moment, it's vitamin A, vitamin D, iodine, the things which are going to protect your lungs. 
So, so again, I think prioritize and execute was a whole chapter in Jocko Willink's book. Can you tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, tell us a little about prioritize and execute in this situation or what you've learned from being in the Special Forces about the importance of prioritize and execute? We use prioritization and execute to, to define mission accomplishment. It's how we're going to, it's how we're going to do the job. So it's the, it's the latter stage of planning. The, the other things we've already spoken about today give us the insights as to what we're facing, what is the situation, what are the options. And then the, the prioritization of those is, to, is where we just prune out the stuff that is next level down and we focus our effort on the big ticket items. And I guess military planners are renowned for being able to do that, particularly in the special forces world, particularly in the complex battle space that we're in in this modern era, where we've got, I think the battle space has always been a dynamic and there's always been what uh, Klauswitz would call frictions, which are the, the unknowns, the variables, the, the fatigue level, the spirit of the enemy, the, the, the environment. These are frictions in the battle space that we understand that we have to work with and they help frame what becomes a priority. And if we focus on priorities, it's just like going through an ABC for, for life support with us. We, we can't, we know which one is the most critical of those frictions and we deal with it first. So it's a triage methodology. And when you do that to whatever situation you're facing, you are being efficient. And mission accomplishment is about efficient use of force, manpower, and resources to the priorities then it can, execution naturally follows it but that's that's when we, we spoke about before in terms of having the courage to do what needs to be done even if it's uncomfortable even if our voice trembles when we're saying it but doing it anyway and that's where you know a lot of people from the beginning of our chat today we spoke about people being comfortable being cozy being being convenient sort of abundant and now suddenly that hasn't served them because this is where we make the hard-nosed decisions that are a little bit out of that comfort zone and we push them and we go, well, I'm going to just do this anyway. No one gets out of life alive. So there's really nothing more to lose. You just jump in and do what you think is the best thing you can do in that situation and execute it with diligence and thoroughness and conviction. So if you have those priorities clearly in your mind, what's going to be done first and in what order I'm going to do the rest. And then I just start taking them on. We're also chunking down an overwhelming sort of situation to manageable bite-sized bits. Priority one, the first thing I'm going to do is get this air, get, get an airway to this dude. Then I'll deal with breathing and circulation and yeah. disabilities and everything else. Yeah. But I've got to do that one first. So that makes the, the overwhelm of the job bite-sized and manageable. Yeah. And then we can focus effort and resources and manpower into that bit. Get that bit done, go to the next step, go to the next step. That's how we do complex missions in the, in the modern battle. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, there was a whole chapter on have a simple plan and extreme uh, extreme ownership that you're, you're a SAS team or a, a Navy SEAL team. You didn't want a hundred uh, mission statement which had a hundred different you know aspects to it. It was just going to be too complicated. You had to keep the plan and the mission really simple. And, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, yeah. And and finally, I think we'll, fin we'll end up with, we'll finish up with one more chapter from Jocko Willink, because we've been going for a long time, and, and we won't even have got on to uh, Corner Park and the Texas Rangers. We might do that in part two in a few weeks' time. In fact, we'll do that. But the last Thank one you. I really want to talk to you about was the with a chapter from Extreme Ownership about 
cover and move that in any situation when, when a, the Navy SEALs were retreating perhaps, they would do it in a series of teams. One team would cover for the other team while it retreated and then that team would then cover for the other team while it retreated. And I think the big thing message in that was, was there's no Navy SEAL. There's a Navy SEAL team and teams work together and you relied on your brother and the team absolutely and utterly. In fact, I remember, I think it was in the, that movie. Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers, yes. And they were talking about how that when, when you started off as, as a soldier in the war, you, you were there to save country. And, but after a few days, you'd forgotten about why you were there and your priority was to save your brother in the, the trench hole beside mm-hmm. you. And I think that a lot of people, I suppose, and, I, and I've talked about this a lot in previous podcasts, that this is, this is a social isolation experiment because in the past, we've socially isolated and the Comanche socially isolated. They went off into the high plains of Texas to get away from the Western expansion and get away from the smallpox. But this is the first time we've socially isolated in a society where loneliness was a problem anyway. And now mm-hmm. people are being told to socially isolate for a long time, perhaps on their own in an apartment in the city. Yet we know that Homo sapiens are incredible tribal species and that we know that, that special forces teams have always been successful because they're a team. And I know that you've talked a lot previously when I've done courses with you about having a, a team. What are some of, the, some of the team members that you think that people should be reaching out in this immediate crisis and going forward for what are some of the team members that you think are important for people to develop? It's probably a, probably a different way of answering the question than, than what you'd expect. But I, I use... I use a fit for purpose analogy. I, I use a bookshelf analogy and I teach this kind of construct of finding, finding the strength of human groups. And it doesn't mean if it's just two people or it's one person in an apartment, but reaching out to others through this type of means. It's about getting a bookshelf approach. Each one of us, if you, if you use my analogy this way, each one of us is represented by our experiences, our education, our life, journey to this point there's one volume of a book okay when we're presented with complex challenges if i can deal with those those challenges within the confines of that narrow bandwidth of personal experience great but more often than not we can't hence the tribal reliance the 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 collaborative approach the group approach even by adding one other book to that bookshelf i've now doubled my potential to solve a complex problem by the time i've got you know, a five-man special forces team, I've got thick volumes on a bookshelf that cover a massive range of experiential journeying as, as operators and as individuals, as human beings with different, different backgrounds, different upbringings, you name it. So there's a massive depth of potential then to solve any given problem. So rather than trying to find you know, direct recruits for, for what, who I'd like to have on my team, it's, again, it comes back with working with what is available. And this is the asymmetrical, unconventional mindset probably that I'm semi-cursed with because you look at it and you go, well, I'd like, I'd like the A team, but I've got a, a mix of the A, B, C and D team here. Well, that's what, that's what I've got. Okay, so and this, oh, this is all I can access. So therefore, let's figure out how we work together to bring each strength into play to deal with the situations we face. Right. And that's the so, way I'd approach it, Greg. So what you're saying is don't, it's not time to start off with trying to form a new team. That's too late. It's go realize the importance of team, get together your existing team, even remotely mm-hmm. like you and I are doing, and say, okay, well, let's put our heads together. 
what what skill set do we have as a team that we can use but the priority is to realize that our strength as a species is in the team and the tribe not mm -hmm. by ourselves yeah when they're talking about socialization they're they're talking about they don't we're socially isolated and there will be a negative impact on that without question there's people who like you said we have loneliness as our previous state of normal in society very isolated very fractured family groups it's just the way of the modern world unfortunately that's going to be exacerbated for a lot of people but there's also now that opportunity again for people to collaborate because i've got the time to there's time now to sit on a computer and skype call someone zoom call someone facetime someone that you probably didn't were too busy to do before and you can go oh this person is this is my kind of person i'm going to talk to them i'm going to get to know them better we're going to collaborate on this on a, on a project or we're going to start a bit of a business line or whatever it's going to be that's an opportunity that's now present that women now in our previous busy lives we might not have ever pursued or even identified because we're so busy doing that now we've got this forced pause and then we've got a necessity to reach out in different ways to different people so there's always as they say on the on the special forces battlefield in crisis there's always opportunity all right that's a great way to end so if you've enjoyed the video or the podcast make sure uh, you give it a, a like on youtube or a, a hopefully a five-star rating on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thank you very much for watching. Really appreciated your time and, and I really appreciate Rich's time today. And, and maybe we'll get uh, in a few weeks' time. I know you said you wanted to read uh, Empire of the Summer Moon about Connor Parker and the Texas Rangers. So what we might do is get together in a few weeks' time when you've read it and, and get your take on some of the myriad of lessons that I got from that book. So thanks very much for watching, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.